Welcome to Give a Heck. I am your host, Dwight Heck, and for much of my life, lived my life in quiet desperation, wondering how I was going to pay the bills, take vacations, save for retirement, and one day wondering if I would get off the hamster wheel of life and have purpose. A life that most of society lives, which takes us to work, then home, then repeat, and pays us hopefully enough just to survive. The harsh truth that most live with more months than money and have no idea how to live life on purpose, not by accident. This ensures the mass majority are living not just financially broke, however emotionally and mentally as well due to financial pressures. In each episode, I will introduce you to thoughts, ideas, and guests that can help you to learn how you too can live life on purpose, not by accident. Good day and welcome to Give a Heck. On today's show, I welcome Jesus Eddie Campa. Jesus was born and raised in El Paso, Texas. After 27 years of law enforcement, Eddie retired from public service and transitioned his experience and expertise to the private sector as a mentor, consultant, and sounding board. Eddie served as a chief deputy and chief of police on two different occasions. As a result of his last tour as chief of police in a city impacted by racial divisions, he created and implemented the innovative No Colors, No Labels initiative designed to remove the preconceived notion that the police were racially motivated. NCNL provided a safe community for all citizens. In 2017, he was named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Humanitarian of the Year by the NAACP. Eddie most recently served as the Executive Director for the Council on Law Enforcement, Education, and Training for Oklahoma State as State Director. He is a leader who believes in diversity and that a workforce should mirror the community they serve. He holds a master's degree in criminal justice and security administration and is currently working on a PhD in public service leadership. He is a strong supporter of leadership development, strategic planning, customer service, crisis communication, 21st century policing, and procedural justice. Eddie is the owner of both America's Best Strategic Security Group and Leading Through Adversity. I'd like to welcome you to the show, Jesus. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on and share with us some of your life journey. Oh, Dwight, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And I, I you know, I, we should have done this interview a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, we had that big uh, power outage here. We were still feeling the effects up to last week. It's been crazy here in Texas, but thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to a great conversation. And I as well. Yeah, I have many friends in Texas, people that live in in uh, Dallas, in the woodlands, and many, and they've had, you guys have had power outage issues pretty much lots in 2020 with your storms and stuff that you had. And then even with the snow they had, I don't know if you got the snow that they had here a couple months back, that, that affected them. Um, yeah, I can feel for you. It's unfortunate power outages ha- happen, but we as a society don't realize how much we rely on that little light switch going on and off. Oh yeah. You know, so I, not only did I have my power go out, I had three of my swimming pool valves explode on me uh, when the water froze. And the funny thing is, this is how cold it was. The water was running and circulating and it still managed to freeze. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, see, I live in a, I live in a country where I get snow. We were completely, we were, 
we were completely snow free until it snowed last night. Not a lot, but uh, we they call it our, they call it our spring rain snow combination that we get every spring in April May. Um, but yeah, we we hit deep freeze temperatures here. You wouldn't want to know what they're like, so we're prepared. Whereas in Texas, obviously, you wouldn't be. So Eddie, one of the things I talk about with people is. You know, a lot of people will ask about somebody's background or what's their backstory. For me, that's not good enough. And the reason that I have this desire and drive to find out people's actual origin from childhood to adulthood is my frustration with my two favorite uh, series, which is Star Wars and the Marvel. They both start in the middle and then years later, they go back to the origin. Whereas I, myself personally, I'd rather know the origin because sometimes it's hard to understand where they're coming from, unless you were a person that read the book series and, and actually understood some of the things. So I'd like you, if you could, please tell me your origin story and what key things from your childhood to adulthood that led you to where you're at currently. Yeah. So, you know, my childhood was um, stereotypical of a, uh, of, uh, of, uh, only child, born to a single parent, um, lived on the wrong side of tracks, raised by my grandmother. Mom used, you know, mom usually worked two or three jobs to be able to keep a roof over our head because she was a single parent. You know, she had an eighth grade education because she dropped out of school to help my grandmother raise, you know, her siblings and stuff during that time. She was a garment, my wife, my mom was a garment worker. Um, you know, growing up in El Paso, you know, I had, uh, I always kind of had that, um, uh, that black sheep, uh, everybody thought I wasn't going to accomplish much because I wasn't in a traditional family. You know, I didn't have a dad or mom. I mean, I had a mom. I didn't have a dad. Didn't have the house and professional background and setting and things like that. So uh, my family, my extended family, aunts and uncles, the, a lot of them uh, looked down at me, looked down at us. We were the secondhand generation. We we're the ones who always got all the leftovers and the secondhand stuff because my mom just couldn't afford it, you know. Um, so, you know, one day I had an uncle, uh, who, you know, I was not close to him, but he lived so close by that we were kind of, you know, we were, oh, we, we saw him, like, you know, the majority of the time he was around, around and, you know, he made this comment, uh, while we were all together one day, he said, you know, you know, tells my mom, he says, you know, you know what, Juana, you know, as long as Eddie ends up not in prison and not in jail for selling drugs or in a gang, you know, all we can hope for him is that he can at least at least become the McDonald's, the manager at McDonald's, you know. Um, wow. And I was just kind of like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, even at the right age of eight or nine years old, I knew that that was an insult, <laughs> you know, because uh, I had been hearing, oh, you know, so so is going to be a doctor, so so is going to be an attorney, so so is going to be an engineer, and Eddie's going to, and you know, my family calls me Eddie. Um, Eddie's going to be the um, the manager at McDonald's, hopefully. So, at that point, you know, it, it kind of started of that. It kind of started that mentality of, oh yeah, I'll show you, you know, and. Uh, Throughout my life, uh, I've spent, which I, I now, you know, it's funny, as you get older and you look back at things, I kind of consider it not a waste of time, but I spent, you know, 40 some what years trying to prove people wrong, you know, um, and practically working myself to the bone and, and trying to do everything that I did, you know, and, you know, luckily for me, you know, I, I was able to prove everybody wrong, you know, I, I became 
you know, I, I reached the plat, I reached the, the 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 pinnacle of my career in law enforcement as a chief of police on two occasions. You know, I, I served as a state director. You know, which is rare for people to do. Um, you know, I, I'm in the middle of completing. Well, not in the middle. I'm at the tail end of my PhD. Um, married, have a little bit of money in the bank. You know, not by any means am I rich, but you know, I've got a book coming out. So I think that had I not gone through all of that, and that's the origins, is that if I had not gone through all of that, I wouldn't be where I'm at today because I think I would have probably become complacent. And and like the rest of my my family, you know, they they were used to, you know, pretty much having everything handed to them or, or, or given to them. And, you know, um, a lot of them are, you know, they have good jobs and stuff, but you know, they're they're you know, they're they're um they didn't rise to 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 the level where everybody said they were going to, you know? Um, so yeah, that's the origins. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Sometimes when our families label people, you're going to be an engineer, you're going to be a doctor. They put, they don't realize in that young mindset. Um, and we'll, I'll digress a little bit. An average male female's mindset doesn't develop completely till 23 to 25 so can you imagine as a young kid being, you know, I can imagine it, I'm telling the listeners, imagine being told you're going to be, a, you know, maybe you might be a manager at McDonald's and then another kid's told he's going to be a doctor, an engineer, even though you are aware of it, many people aren't. And that child has actually got pressure put on them because it's probably repeated over and over again, even in their mindset or the family will constantly say, oh yeah, a little little John or little Ralph or whatever, or Sally's going to be a doctor when they grow up and they hear that their whole lives. And then they don't become that doctor. And all they've done is set them back in their mindset. So I can't imagine hearing that. Um, you know, I do remember my parents talking about what they thought I was going to be, but they never ever labeled me that way. They just said, Oh, and his, right now Dwight's thinking of doing this. They'd always talk to me. So I was lucky that way, but you know, and relatives looking down on you and you, you know, being that secondhand generation, you know, being thought of as not being as successful that had, and I look at what I've learned about from you in our conversation prior to recording and researching you, you know, I just want to say, I'm proud of you. Congratulations for pulling up your bootstraps and, and doing what you've done. Obviously there's a lot more that the listeners and I can learn from you and about you but you know what, just from your origin, I'm proud of you. That's amazing. Like you, you could have sat back and let that negativity draw you back and hold you back. And you could be the manager of McDonald's instead of the champion you have become. Well, thank you, Dwight. That means, that means a lot, you know, uh, don't really get to hear how proud people are me, you know, a lot of the times. So every time I hear it, it makes me blush and just want to say thank you. Cause you know, it, it, it's nice to hear, you know, it's nice that, yeah, because even even today, you know, to, to in today's time, you know, while I know they kind of, you know, they're proud of me, but they've never really said it, <laughs> you know. And so, and uh, finally, like I said in December of of, of last year, um, I just got tired. I got I got tired of um, of trying to prove people wrong. And now I live life on my own terms, and it's great. It's the happiest I've ever been. Yeah, living life on purpose is such a strong um, thing. So one of the things that I'd actually put here, and you, you've answered a little bit of it, but, you know, you for years, like me, have been chasing life and attempt to make it, right? I put it down here. 
or what I state is living a life on purpose. When you finally started living your life on your own terms, you found happiness with everything you had been doing and started really to enjoy life. Up to that point, though, through your life had been one adversity after another, one challenge after another, you, aver- you overcome it all, as I was just saying, and triumph. And now you're on the journey of continuing to help others live their life on purpose. Can you tell me more about the journey of adversity, like some, some specific stories that might pop into your mindset and the steps you did to ensure the second half of your life now is more peaceful and on your own terms? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, adversity has been around, you know, and, and I'm not like any any different than any, a lot of stories, but, you know, I, uh, a lot of people in my, in my position, you know, growing up uh, with a single parent and things like that, a lot of people uh, traditionally, they, they just kind of curl up into the fetal position and just say, Oh, woe is me. Woe is me. And, and I've never said that, you know, while don't get me wrong, there's been times where I've said, Oh my God, woe is me. And I, and I suck on my thumb for, you know, five minutes. And then it's like, okay, all right, this isn't the worst thing that's ever happened. I, I, I've solved that other difficult things. And the thing is, a lot of a lot of the a lot of the things is is overcoming perception. Um, and I think that's one of the one of the chapters in my book talks about perception because I was never supposed to be that guy. I was never supposed to be the guy who who, who got promoted to chief. I wasn't supposed to be that guy who made state director. I wasn't supposed to be that guy, you know, because by you know I, I look at myself and say, you know, I'm not the most talented guy in the book in in the world, but you know what, you're you're never going to outwork me, you know. And a lot of times people will have this perception of you. You know, I, I've always thought of working smarter, not harder, because, you know, why make my job harder and stuff? And so, you know, I've got a lot of critics out there, uh, you know, both professionally and personally that I've had to overcome. But, you know, the biggest the biggest hurdle that we ever had to overcome was my time in, in that town, in that city in East Texas, uh, where all of a sudden I was introduced to the world's biggest culture shock. Um, you know, I live in a community, as we were talking earlier in El Paso, Texas, is, is we've got a million people here. This next census will show we have about a million people in our community. Um, but we're very diverse. We're very accepting. We're loving. We're, um, you know, we're, we call ourselves the, the, you know, the sun city for many reasons, you know, and, and, and our mascot is, is this round sun called Mr. Uh, Amigo Man, you know, because we're all about being friends and united. We've got all sorts of social economic classes. You know, so that's not even an issue. So when I went to this community, um, as I told you earlier, they hired me, I think, because they couldn't hire another Caucasian and they weren't going to hire an African-American for sure. So they settled for this caramel guy and hired me. And I came in and I was supposed to bridge that gap and end that racial division. And while we did, we were very successful with No Colors, No Labels, which was an initiative that I created. Now, listen to this. The initiative was designed to remove the preconceived notion that the community had that the police were racially motivated. Now, I purposely had a name at that because uh, while the police department was very racially motivated, I didn't want them to know that I couldn't say, you know, to remove the pre- to remove the notion that the police are, ra- are racially motivated. So uh, the community uh, really took to the program, you know, and, and they really loved what we were doing. Uh, that city that I was in was a very racially divided community. Um, it served as one of the major slave hubs during slavery. You know, they sold, they sold and punished slaves in their town square. Um, and you know, the 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 rich were the white folk, the plantation owners, and stuff like that. And the African Americans were usually oppressed and things like that. 
So, you know, we came in and, and we started changing things. And, and, you know, the saddest thing was I couldn't get the police officers to, to, to buy into it um, because there's two things police officers hate the most. And that's the way things are in change. Um, you know, and the thing that uh, that was probably the biggest adversity that I ever had. And the thing is, is it, it wasn't, you know, I had 75 police officers assigned to me and I'm only about five of them bought into it, you know, bought into what we were doing. Um, so that was kind of tough and, you know, they made my life a living hell. And, you know, I guess I kind of made theirs a little bit hard as well with the ideas and stuff. Cause you know, you, when you come in to change a culture, you have to know that, you know, you're not going to change a culture in two or three years. It's, you know, it takes a lifetime to change a culture, unfortunately. So that was probably the biggest adversary that ad- adversity that I ever had. You know, I mean, I wasn't even in the city five minutes when I pulled into my home, into our home over there, me and my wife and my kids and my neighbor who drives up in a little golf cart and she looks at me and she's looking at me with this dazed look on her face. And I'm like, hi, how are you? And she says, oh my God, they told us the police chief was living next to us, but I never believed that you were a Mexican. And I was like, (laughs) I just looked at her and I was like, okay. I said, well, technically I said, I'm an American of Mexican descent. I said, but yeah, I guess I, I guess I really am a Mexican. And the funny thing is, you know, you hear about this and I always just thought it was a joke, but she literally looks at me and she says to me, are you even edumacated? And I said, edumacated? I said, no, no, by all means, no, I'm not edumacated. I'm educated. So I do have a master's degree, but edumacated? No. And she's like, what's the difference? And I'm like, oh my God, are you serious? It's like, you said educated. That's not a word. Educated is, I'm like, never mind. But that's how it started. Five minutes into wow. my arrival into the town. So you could just imagine what the next three years are like. Yeah. I, it, my mind is just racing because I hear of stories like that. I've experienced stuff like that. Not even at that level, though. Like, I can't believe it. <clears throat> and it, that today and day and age, that somebody would have the the moxie to actually s- say something like that to you instead of hi it's pleased to meet you really nice to you know we heard the chief of police is going to live beside us my name's carol or my name's whatever thank you so much for taking on that position look forward to getting to know you better but instead she lived a motto that i teach all the time it's better to be thought an idiot than open your mouth and remove all doubt. She opened yes. her mouth and just proved her her level of intelligence. And that word you used about, you know, not knowing the difference between educated and unbelievable. That I, I just can't even imagine. That must have been a, a real kick in the gut for you to move in and know that you got to live beside somebody that's racially motivated. You know, those three years were really tough, you know, and, and I think the community, not the community, the community understood uh, the officers didn't understand the fact that the reason, you know, because when I got there on day one, I was like, oh, my God, where did I bring my family? This is not going to be pleasant. A few days later, my wife went to Walmart, you know, to buy groceries and all that good stuff. And, you know, my wife, heavens to me, I don't know why the hell she married me because she's drop dead gorgeous, uh, you know. Um, but she um, went to Walmart, always well-dressed and bought the stuff. And, and, the, and the cashier looks at her older, you know, older lady. And she says, oh, dear, 
you can't pay for this here. The, the food stamp card that we call it, um, we call it, uh, uh, the heck do we call it? Oh shoot, I don't know about the food stamp machine. Uh, it doesn't work here. You need to go over there. And my wife's like, why do I have to pay with food stamps? She goes, because you're Mexican. All Mexicans play with food stamps. And oh I was, goodness. I was like, it was like, wow. I mean, just the ignorance of the community um, of some of the people, you know, the community in general, I would say about 99% of the community was just fantastic. Great supporters of no colors, no labels and of myself, but there was just a part of the community that just was hell bent on not changing. Wow. That's just unbelievable. It's yeah. It, you, you, you think of this stuff maybe 60, 80 years ago, not something as, you know, a decade ago or less that it's still happening. But we see that a lot through the pandemic and the BLM movements and everything else that's gone on in our country. It isn't so much the BLM movement through the pandemic. It was um how the native Canadians were have, have been treated and ostracized. So when they couldn't in our country accept the BLM movement, because it's not true, that's something that's what was happening in the US, which, you know, listeners, that was actually um, put on by white people. If you actually research and do the information, BLM is created and been proven to be, it's the movement's good, the idea of it's good, but the people that were fueling the fire were doing it for the wrong reasons. And a lot of it was money motivated. And we had that happen in our own country, but it was more so toward um, the natives. And it just still blows me away that your wife would even have to go through that, or you would have to go through that with the neighbors. So, you know, my listeners, you guys need to realize that acceptance is key one of the things Jesus said to that lady was the fact that I'm an American. I have Mexican descent, but I'm American, right? We're supposed to live a world of a melting pot. It shouldn't matter if he was born there or not born there. He's there. He's part of the community. He's part of that village. And people need to learn acceptance and more tolerance. And I hope you aren't one of those people that are, are you know, causing problems for others because they're racially different they're you know maybe their religion's different there's so many reasons why we can be profiled and treated like garbage um don't be that person and if you are you know what you obviously shouldn't be part of my tribe so i know that sounds harsh but i'm looking for people that are like-minded that want to impact and make a change in life and jesus has definitely done that especially with the no colors no labels initiative. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? About the initiative? Yeah. So, you know, when I, when I first got hired, I was told, you know, about the racial issues and they wanted, you know, they wanted to bring 21st century policing to the forefront and they wanted procedural justice and they wanted, um, you know, at the time that I took over the agency, the agency was going through a very tenuous, uh, tenuous time between the city and even city hall. I mean, the department had just gone out on a blue flu. If anybody doesn't know what a blue flu is, is when the police officers start calling in sick. Uh, they start calling in sick to where you don't have the ample coverage to provide you know, the right protection for the city. They stop writing tickets because you know, municipalities, you know, they get some um, they get some funds out of municipal citations and 
it was just you know it was it, I was going into a, a, a an agency that was in turmoil and, and it was my job to change it. But uh, you know, here the funny thing is, you you know, you learn these things in hindsight. Is that you know, uh, it's very racially motivated. So let's go ahead and put it in the first minority to make the change. You know, <laughs> and it's like uh, you know, but there was all these parameters. You know, you sometimes as a leader, you have to be given the authority and the ability to get rid of the people that don't follow your vision and don't see that vision. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we're, we're in, a in a time right now where everybody wants to be liked. And I've never taken on a role because I wanted to be liked. I figured that if I wanted to be liked, I should go sell ice cream because everybody likes the ice cream guy, right? I'm in a leadership position and my job is to accomplish a mission and get things done. And, you know, so No Colors, No Labels was created out of that, you know, when I first arrived and I started meeting with the community and um, town hall meetings and things. That was one of the things that they talked about, you know, the disparity of, of the way they were treated, the over-policing of the black neighborhoods, the, the you know, the, the uh, police brutality over African-Americans and, you know, um, Hispanics, you know, there was a lot of Hispanics in that community, but uh, the majority of those Hispanics were there illegally and they lived behind the shadows, you know, because they were always being told by the police officers that if they saw them out, they were going to deport them, you know, and, and the thing is, is that that's not the job of a municipal police officer to deport people, you know? Uh, so these people were always in fear, you know, and crime would go up because, you know, these people wouldn't report crime because they were afraid if they reported a crime, the police would show up and then they deport everybody, but it wow. never happened, right? So with No Colors, No Labels was a program that I just came up with. And I said, you know what, we're gonna change it. It's a grassroots program. It started off with uh, a cultural awareness meal. Uh, we were gonna highlight every culture that was in our community. Started off with the African-American culture and we had about, eh, about 100 people show up. We fed them, we, we brought in pro, uh, uh, professors and experts on the African-American culture to talk about the African-American culture, why they eat the certain foods, you know, the issues with slavery and things like that. And the second one was the, the Hispanic culture awareness meal. We got about 250 people. And every time we did a different culture, we just started growing and growing and growing. And at the very last, at the very last cultural awareness meal, we had a very rich white uh, individual uh, who everybody knew was was racist. And uh, we had the NAACP chapter president, you know, uh, an older black uh, female, beautiful lady. Uh, I mean, she rest in peace now. But uh, they were arch enemies in that city, you know. Um, and at the end of the meal, at the end of the series. Of, of, of that part of the series for NCNL, they were sitting together at the same table holding hands. And, and these people are, you know, in their late, you know, up in their seven, you know, mid eighties, I guess, holding hands, laughing like they'd been the best of friends. And I had somebody come up and say, hell just froze over. How did you do that? And I said, people fear the unknown. And it's not until you start explaining the unknown. And what we found out is that we all, you know, we all may look different, but we have so many similarities that it's on it's, it's uncanny, you know. And other part of the no colors, no labels was, you know, we got the ministry, uh, the faith-based communities, faith-based organizations together to help pass messages around. We we developed a a cool cops ice cream truck, which is one of my favorite things. I uh, I got together and I, I noticed the juvenile crime was going up, and the only time that juveniles have any interaction with police officers is when we're arresting their mom, their dad, their brother, or sister, or them, 
So I figured, you know, I, 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 I uh, and, and I remember the police officers were like, we're not going to become ice cream men. And it's funny because I, I literally had to, I, I said earlier, I didn't want to be liked and I should go sell ice cream. Well, I didn't sell it. I was giving it away. Uh, so we partnered up with Bluebell Ice Cream, created a police ice cream truck. And myself and a couple of my officers, we would go out and we would just hang out with the children and pass out ice cream in the community. And, and they loved it. You know, crime went down by 20 percent. We started uniting the community. And while the police officers saw that it was working, they 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 were not receptive to it because it's like, well, wait a minute. Why should we, you know, when are you going to go to the white part of town? I'm like, I didn't know we had a white part of town and a black part of town and an Asian part of town. We serve the entire community and we, we would just go out. So, you know, and in 2017, I was given the, um, I was given the, um, the uh, Martin Luther King Humanitarian of the Year Award for, for everything that we did. And I was the highest honor uh, to this day of my professional career. Wow. That's so exciting, though, that you stuck to your guns. I hear tenacity throughout your story. You're a very tenacious person. You you didn't care if you were liked, but yet you wanted other people to like the people that you were trying to serve and help. And that is a very admirable quality to take on the burden of other people's hate, anger, resentment, just so that you can help out the community reunite. Um, that is just amazing. The story of those two people holding hands, the blue flu, I never knew about that. I don't know if the listeners did. I didn't, you know, I'd heard that term. Honestly, I've heard the term, but I didn't know what it meant. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's just amazing. And then, you know, giving away ice cream to, to help, but it's always, People can't like, and, and the cops saying, well, what about the white neighborhoods? That's because they're always having that entitled mindset. They can't see the forest for the trees and realize that you were trying to unite a faction of people that felt overlooked. And then, you know, you're talking about the, the people that are, you know, illegal immigrants, not wanting to report crime and stuff such a, a amount of stuff that you took on and that you did deserve that award though obviously they felt so i don't i'm only getting to know you now i agree with them 100 um you took on a lot of burden brother like between your six inches and a detention on your family and everything you went through congratulations you know i guarantee you've left an indelible mark on that community forever whether or not it takes generations to continually go on, I hope that some people picked up the mantle and continue to push push that besides just you. Well, well thank you. And unfortunately, they didn't. Uh, every program that we created, I mean, the day that I left, uh, you know, I, I had a, I had a, a three-year contract and then I, I went ahead and uh, I went ahead and not renewed it, came back home, started working on my PhD. Uh, and the community threw me a, a phenomenal going away party you know they, they uh, if you go to my website you'll see you know some of the people um what they were saying about me and at the at that at that party that going away party but you know when i left we had these we had put these stickers the ncnl stickers on each patrol car and basically what that was a symbol of is a, was we're friendly we don't care what color you are we don't care what label you have you are in, in need or help or you need whatever you can approach us and uh, from what I was told is that the day that I left, the first thing that the officers went and did was tear off those stickers off, off every patrol car. 
and um, you know, it is what it is, I guess, you know, they didn't want to have that legacy. You know, they, they, they ended up the, the, the ice cream truck program because they just thought it was stupid. And, you know, they're back in into the same boat that they were, you know, before I got there. So that's, you know, that's uh, unfortunate, but you know what, you're still gonna, in my opinion, you're still gonna have left a mark on specific individuals and specific groups and smaller communities will never forget you. And, you know, all it takes is one person to, to give a heck and pivot and change even one person's mindset. That person could grow up, that child got free ice cream, maybe, at, you know, people talk kindly to them. You don't ever know where that focus on their mental mindset could shift to make them into the next leader to make a difference in whatever they decide to do. So I believe you made a difference. It's unfortunate that community um, you know, the policing force did that sort of really childish entitled behavior. But I think you, no matter what, you, I believe you already know this, but if you don't, you made a difference and your difference is going to be felt for people for decades to come. You, though you may not be there to see it, you did. You honestly did make a difference. And, you know, and it took a long time to, to realize that because um, while I don't have any regrets, that was that was one of the biggest while it was one of my greatest success stories because of what we did with the community, I always looked at it as one of my biggest failures because I couldn't get and I couldn't lead the men and women that I was hired to lead to the promised land. I couldn't get them there because they didn't want to come, you know. And I mean, you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink it, you know. Yeah, of course. And, um, so it took a while. It took a long time. It took a lot of uh, hitting my head on the wall, trying to figure out what went wrong, and you know, finally. My 22-year-old son, who is so wise without beyond his years, you know, he sat there one day and he looked at me and says, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. Everything was right. And that was the problem. They couldn't bear to see a man of color do the right things because how dare you come in and shape a community and change its culture and its heritage. So you didn't do anything wrong. And if you don't believe me, dad, Look at the video of your going away party. Look at the fact that you were given the NAACP Humanitarian of the Year Award. You've left the legacy that whether they like it or not. And after that, it was kind of like, okay, kind of silent the noise in the head. And I realized that like, just like what you said, you know, I know we impacted more than one life. And, and, and that to me is, is a victory. So, Oh, brother. That's one of the things that's the toughest when we're leaders and we, take on adversity and challenge and want to change the status quo. It's fine for me to say, I'm proud of you, but you need to believe and be proud of yourself. Right. And, and realize what your son said is so true. You have nothing to feel bad about. If anything, your chest should pop out and you should just be like patting yourself on the back. And, and that's the biggest thing I, I coach on that too. I had to, I have to do that for myself, be proud of who we are. It's fine to hear accolades and, and people tell us that we're proud, but if we don't believe it and to believe it means we need to be proud of ourselves. So again, I'll, I have said it to you. I am proud of, of what you've accomplished. And I hope though, even if you have any self-doubt left, I hope you're able to push that out because you should be proud of yourself, man. Most people would never, ever take on being hated by others. Most people wouldn't do that. And it sounds okay. harsh. I, I don't like the word hate, but it exists. It's a reality. 
And we all want to be liked. And you took on the mantle of, you know what? Certain people are going to like me, more are going to hate me, but hopefully I can change it, the gap and bridge it. And, you know, three years you put in the time, you, I, I know for a fact you imp implemented um, things that will be with people forever. And of course you've helped more than one person, but the way I, I, I console myself and move forward with things that I've done in communities or with groups is that as long as I know I impacted one person, Obviously, if you know you impacted tens, hundreds, that's great. But as long as I know one person and you tell yourself that even if you never, ever meet that one person personally, and they come back to you and say, hey, Zeus, everything you did, you know, impacted me. And you hear stories where people get somebody come to them 20, 30 years later and tell them um, how much they impacted them. I know there's somebody out there that it, that'll happen to you someday. Like, I honestly believe that, you know. I'm a God-fearing person. God puts you in that circumstance, not because it was easy, because that's what needed to happen for both them and for you, because it developed you more as a person too, and an appreciation for the fact that change needs to happen. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I know it can be tough, and hopefully it's not too sensitive. Again, if I ask you something, you can always avoid it and just, you know, we can move on. You know, the, the great thing about that is, you know, now that, that I do the coaching, the mentoring, the leadership and stuff like that and talking about it, it's, it's more therapeutic. You know, when I wrote the book, the book was therapeutic, you know, and, and getting on these podcasts and talking about it, it just, you know, you realize that, you know, you, you like I said, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink it. So, you exactly. know, exactly. Um, Fortunately, we live in a world, and we saw, we talked about this a little bit earlier when we were talking before the podcast started, was that we live in a world of hearts and likes and, you know, my popularity and how many likes that my posts get. And, and we live in a world where the facts don't matter. Uh, it just matters about who's first. And how can I damage somebody's career by saying negative things about them and, and things like that without any proof? I mean, you know, this whole fake news um outlet that it was created back then you know in 2016 2014 has just been remarkable to say the least it's know? a disease mm -hmm. it's a disease that good people in the world like you and i and many of the listeners you're good people as well it's a disease that we're trying to be part of the cure we're trying to create fix it but it took years even before like you said fake news started it was still there it just was, it's became more prevalent because of technology and social media. We just have to continue to try to be the cure to, to help people move forward and go from there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's great that you're continuing to push forward. You may not be loved by everybody, but you're going to be loved by enough people that matter. And those people are going to go out and continually lift up the mantle that you're working on and have been working on and, uh, you know, make a change. And that's, that's the biggest thing. Hold on to that. Use that to fuel you. Because if we give up, leaders like you and I give up, the world's just going to go to hell in a handcart, right? It's just not going to, we're going to, we're never going to move forward if we give up and just let the negative of the world take over. Well, you see, and, and I'm glad you touched on that subject because, you know, society has really lost, and, and that's what my book touches on, it, it has lost 
it's understanding and definition of leadership because people look at leadership as the guy that I like because he benefits me and he follows my my mindset as opposed to while I don't agree with the guy, he's a great leader because he's thinking outside the box and he's doing this. Leadership is now looked at, you know, I've got a lot of critics. I've got a lot of critics. And, you know, they'll tell you that I don't know the first thing about leadership. You know, you don't know how to lead. You've never been a leader, yada, yada, yada. He was like, okay. Um, you know, you just kind of like, okay, you know, and, and go with it. Um, because I don't, I hold people accountable, you know, and, and, and I feel that we have a mission to accomplish. The mission needs to get done. We need to unite people. We need to bring prosperity back, uh, not only to the United States, but to the world. I mean, you know, we have lost our way, you know, and, and, and as far as leadership is concerned, leadership is not about being liked or being popular. Leadership is about doing the right thing when it's hard, you know, it's doing the right thing because nobody's looking. It's doing the right thing when somebody's looking. It's doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, period. Not because, oh, you know what, uh, if I do this, ooh, I'll get some more likes on my Instagram. That's not what leadership is about. And, and we live in a world where people have really lost the terminology of leadership. I mean, you know, the last, I don't want to turn this political, but, you know, the last United States political, the last, the last, the one, the last two <laughs> presidential races here in the United States. I mean, you know, what a circus that was, you know. Yeah, it's so, been it's been character building. We have that in Canada as well. Um, in my 53 years, I've never liked anybody in politics. Um, I vote for the least slimiest so that, that I can say that I'm involved so I can communicate. But even the least slimiest has always let me down. They're always entitled. You always find out about things they do in the shadows while they're in power or after they were in power and really they don't they haven't done anything to to make a change for the majority it's always a minority of businesses or wealthy people that they're they're stroking to keep them happy based on the same analogy of likes and loves and hearts and all that stuff they're trying to please the people they think that can do something for them and you know long term it's just sad where our world has has come to the next thing I wanted to is going to be kind of a sensitive topic. Um, and if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. We can certainly move on. But I believe my listeners and myself would appreciate your take and all the conversation in 2020 about defunding the police. It happens both in Canada and US and around the world. It's the conversation has been struck up. What steps have uh, have had to happen for people in society to be like what steps part of me need to happen for people in society to be educated and stop crying out to fund the police or are you in favor of some of this happening yeah no so um, one of the major issues is that people need to understand that this whole defund the police movement isn't new um, you know uh, this has been going on since the 60s about defunding police and that's what one thing about the world not just America, is that we have short-term memories. And there's a movie out there, and so you know short-term memories, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was based in the 60s, the, uh, during the, the Black Panther movement, and it just came out uh, this year, um, and I really can't remember the name of it. That's okay. But that's a perfect example, and it talks about how the defund the move, policing movement started back in Chicago when the Black Panther Party's building was burned to the ground by the police, by, you know, um, 
So the whole defunding the police is, is, is no, I'm not a fan of it. Uh, while I understand what they're saying, I think that instead of using the word defund, the word needs to be reallocate um, because we in law enforcement, we the police officers, we are the peacekeepers. We are the enforcers of the law that were created, divine, designed and developed by our, our um, people elected in office to write laws, okay? Our job is not to deal with mental health issues. We're not psychologists. Our job is not to respond to medical emergencies. We are first responders who barely know how to do CPR. Um, we are not counselors. Uh, you know, we are not, a lot of the things that have been given to law enforcement to do are things that we were never designed to do. And anytime that people cannot think of a way, uh, hey, you know, we have this problem. Who can fix it? Ah, give it to the police. They can fix it. And what they don't realize is that we don't get any funding for it. You know, so back in back in 2009, when I was with the El Paso County Sheriff's Office as the commander, as the chief, as the chief deputy, uh, our sheriff at that time decided to to designate and make everybody a mental health peace officer. It's a 40-hour course designed to show us how to deal with mental episodes and mental issues. That's a 40-hour course, and now I am deemed an expert on mental health after 40 hours. Uh, while it was a great course, it was a great idea. It did help us to learn how to deescalate. It was a it was a step in the right move. He did the right thing. He had the right vision. Um, but here's the thing: we didn't get any funding for that. We did that with our current budget. He brought in the experts to teach us the course to certify us on our own dime. You know, on on the existing budget that we had. So when you say, "Well, we're going to take your mental health funding," well, what mental health funding? We don't have any. You know, so how are we going to take it away when we don't have it? You know, well, we're going to take away your 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 funding to buy military style weapons. Well, we don't have we don't have funding for that. We use the 1033 program, which I'm not sure what it's called now. It was called 1033 at that time, uh, where we 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 acquire uh, equipment from the military. And a lot of people say, well, why do you need it for? Well, you've seen the civil unrest that has happened throughout the country, and and unfortunately, when when things go out to that nature, you need to have the proper tools to be able to, 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 to bring peace back to, to the community, you know? Um, so I, I do believe that uh, police is the policing agencies, law enforcement is in crisis mode more because we've been overburdened with, with responsibilities that do not line in our, do not belong in our pocket. Um, uh, do I feel that, uh, you know, this is another issue where I get myself in trouble because of my way of thought? Look, <laughs> today I am 21 years old. I just turned 21 years old. Going back to my McDonald's story, I am flipping burgers at McDonald's. And I took a test and I'm a great test taker and I passed it. Now I'm in the police academy. And I'm in the police academy to learn how to enforce the laws, how to drive, how to shoot, how to take people's life and liberty away if need be. And that transpires all in five to six months. Um, I wouldn't let a doctor touch me who went to school for six months. I wouldn't let a teacher educate my children who went to school for six months. Hell, we don't even let plumbers be plumbers uh, they have to go through a whole apprentice program. Electricians have to be go through a whole. They, yes, they may go through a a two year. They go through a two year program at the community college or trade school, and then they have to be an apprentice for five to six years before they become a journeyman. And yet, but yet, as a police officer, here here's six months. Here's a badge. Here's a gun. Go do your thing, and that's the end of it. 
So the police, we need more training. You know, um, we, we, we need to be able to be better trained. We need to introduce more emotional intelligence as opposed to just learning how to defend ourselves and shoot and drive. We need more emotional intelligence. We need to take a, a, a stance on procedural justice. And, and the funny thing is, is I've gone to conferences and I've talked about procedural justice and I've asked officers, what is procedural justice? And they look at me like, like I just asked them to solve the world's biggest quantum physics problem. They're like, uh, I don't know what procedural justice is. Yeah. And it's like, okay, think about procedural justice this way. Procedural justice is the golden rule you learned in kindergarten. Procedural justice is treating others the way you want to be treated. That's what procedural justice is. It's it's let people be heard, provide, let people be heard, um, provide a solution and come to a solution. It's basically an arbitration. You know, it's, it's, there's my side, there's your side, there's the truth, and then there's an outcome. And that's the way, you know, if you, you know, that's the way things should be handled. Uh, and that's the whole, I, I totally simplified procedural justice, but that's basically what it is. You know, it's the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. So uh, to answer your question, I went in a big circle just to say, no, I don't agree with defunding the police. I do agree with maybe reallocating, you know, for instance, New York, Los Angeles, they have police department psychologists that, that respond with the police department. You know, but why is that under the umbrella of the police department? Why is the police department, the police chief telling psychologists how to be psychologists? I don't know the first thing about being a psychologist. So take those positions. Yeah, take their funding, take the money that, that you gave me to pay for them. Sure, move them over to the mental health avenue, move them to the division they belong to. You didn't defund me, you reallocated. And they weren't part of my staff. They weren't part of the policing issue. So what's the problem? You know, it's just, you have to look at it as to what it is. And uh, I hope I answered your question. And oh, you, you did. Sense. You did. And, you know, it's been, when you reached out and we discussed you being on the podcast and I started researching you, I was blown away by the fact of what you accomplished. And that was one of the things that really come to, it's a really sensitive subject, but people need to hear what your side of the story is or what you believe should be the outcome of this so-called defunding the police, whether it happened in this started in the sixties or not, it really became prevalent over not just the pandemic, the last few years, because of the amount of black kids that have been killed yet. They, the media takes statistics and circumstances and blows it out of proportion to set to sell advertising and to keep their jobs. They don't do it to to unite, and it just drives me absolutely crazy. So your answer was fantastic, actually. I really appreciate your your insight to it, and reallocate versus defund, you know, type of mindset. Are we going to rub some people wrong? There might be people that have stopped listening to the podcast after oh, absolutely. that. Absolutely, <laughs> I know what, and that's okay. Because what did we talk about prior? We're looking for our tribe of people. We're looking for our community of people, of like-minded people that want to be the leader, knowing that it's going to be an uncomfortable thing, but understanding that the result is is united thought processes, united um, communities. It's just, it's amazing. I, you know, I am so excited to continue to follow your journey and, and be part of, you know, your support network to ensure that you know things continue forward 
And that's what this podcast can potentially do, because it's not just a problem in the U.S., it's a problem in Canada, too. We heard a lot of people talk about defunding the police, and I got upset, had many discussions with people saying, how is that going to accomplish anything? You've given way too much for the police to deal with. When And we did, we talked about the schooling thing you talked about. And I looked at it when I worked, because I mentioned, I don't know if it was during the podcast, but prior to the podcast, I believe it was, I did a lot of consulting work for the police in my city, we're 1.2 million people. And I looked at the fact of when they started as a, as a, a new recruit to what they went through for training, and six, seven months later, they got a gun and they're out on the streets, and the burden of what they're supposed to deal with and the power that they're given. Of course, you're going to have people that are going to go, that are going to be great at it after seven months. They're just going to naturally fall into that role because they're a good person prior and caring. And then you're going to have the cray craze that you don't understand that they didn't have proper psychological testing or maybe a deep dive enough into them and they get given a gun and they become hell bent on, you know, me, me, police me though i'm the way you follow my way or the highway and that happens but a majority listeners majority of the police officers i dealt with and still have connection to i'd say 96 percent, 95 percent are great people but you always just like that analogy a rotten apple in a barrel makes the whole barrel go rotten so we need to support the good police the people that want to change so they can be empowered to toss that rotten apple out of the barrel if that makes sense. Well, absolutely. You see, and that's one of the things that I always talk about, because I'll take it a step further and say 99% of police officers are good people. There's that 1%, which happens to be the bad and the very vocal. And that bad and very vocal, unfortunately, because everybody wants to be liked, when they start yapping, the good guys kind of shy away because they want to be liked. Well, what if they don't like? And usually that vocal guy who is not necessarily always the bad police officer, but the police officer that may be a little bit shady is usually that guy that has the big mouth who's always going to go against the system. And not that there's anything going against the system because I've gone against the system my entire life, especially a system that we've got right now that needs to be redesigned and restructured because we're talking about laws and beliefs and authorities that we have followed in the criminal justice system that were designed back during the, you know, the U.S. Constitution days, you know, a lot of those, a lot of the issues that we have now need to be rectified to the world that we currently live in now. We can't be living, we can't be following rules and laws that that are obsolete, that are over 100 years old, <laughs> that don't prevail practice in today's real world, you know, I mean, you're seeing it with the legalization of marijuana. I mean, am I a fan of it? Well, by no means am I, but I guess I would rather be hit by a person who is in, impaired with marijuana as opposed to a person who's drunk. Cause I've never in 27 years responded to an accident uh, where a, a person impaired with marijuana killed somebody. It, it was more like uh, they're, they're driving at two miles an hour and all they're doing really is impeding traffic, <laughs> you know? So, you know, I mean, I think if you really should decentralize or de-legalize de, uh, any, or, or uh, I'm sorry, if you should actually make any drug Illegal should be alcohol. Alcohol causes more deaths than, than anything, you know. And hey, don't get me wrong, I enjoy I like enjoying a good beer and stuff, but man, I mean, alcohol kills a lot of people. So, so family you know, violence. it's not even just killing, it's family violence. 
yeah. alcoholism. I've had it involved in my family and relatives. I've seen, I've had families lose their mom and dad to a drunk driver, four kids, right? Orphaned. Um, I've been through it all. Alcohol is very sensitive subject for me. And the, what I call the committee of their society romanticizes alcohol and TV shows and movies. Every show you see, you can, there, it can be a doctor goes into his office. He's pouring himself a drink. What kind of image are you setting in people's mindset? You know, that it's okay to drink during the workday at your job. Like, are you kidding me? I mean, even when you think of the, of the police shows we see today, you know, we, we, we've always heard about the code of silence, the, the blue wall, the, you know, you see some of the movies today where the bad officer goes out and, and all the other officers cover up for this person because, you know, he's one of us. He's, you know, the, the, the code of silence. You're like, wait a minute. You have TV shows and movies that are glorifying this. Of course, people are going to think it's okay. And it's not okay. You know? It's not in any way. Absolutely. So I really appreciate your, you know, your honesty and sharing with the listeners and I. Um, one of the things, because we're running out of time here, I want to ask you about is your book, Unmasking Leadership. Tell the listeners and I through what is it about specifically? Obviously, there's connotations to the, the title, but can you tell me any interesting stories about, you know, the book and, and how it came about? Yeah, so Unmasking Leadership is all about, came about through my life, actually, through my career, is That's that, um, you know, I knew by all means, you know, I knew leadership wasn't going to be easy. I mean, uh, but there are things that people forget to tell you about when you become a leader, you know, that, yeah, you know, it's lonely at the top. You don't know who's around you because they want to be around you because they actually like you or they believe in your in your vision or they're around you because of what you can benefit them and in what way you can benefit them. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. You know, um, I had, I had a lot of friends uh, when I was the chief deputy and the commander and everybody wanted to go out to lunch with me. Everybody wanted to hang out, wanted to do this because I benefited them. When I left the agency, uh, I don't hear from any of them anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, why? Cause I can't do anything for them. Uh, you know, went on to become the chief in, in in those other communities, and same thing. People surround themselves because they think they can be, you can benefit out of them. So a lot of the times you're out there alone. You're you know you don't know who to talk to. You don't know who to turn to. Um, Unmasking leadership talks about you know the different types of um, of people that are out there. You know, um, people that are out there talk, trying to 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 use you just because you can do something for them. And, you know, it talks about um, the fact that, you know, in leadership, you're going to piss people off and, and it's OK. It's OK to piss people off. You know, I mean, don't be rude and disrespectful about it, but you're going to upset people just like you do in every day. You know, I know that every day that I wake up, there's a lot of people that get mad because I woke up, you know, <laughs> you know, so but it talks it talks about how getting a mentor. See, I never understood what a mentor was. You know, I thought a mentor was like my boss or, or the guy that, that, you know, that was in charge of me at the time that I thought that was my mentor, the guy who was supposed to show me the ways. And that's not really a mentor. A mentor is somebody that you can connect with, somebody that's, that, that puts your needs ahead of their needs and shows you the way and, and shows you how to get there. You know, there's a difference between a coach and a mentor. A mentor, you know, 
for all this time, I didn't even know that I had, I knew my mentor. Uh, my mentor has been my mentor for over 20 years. And it wasn't until 2014 that I discovered he was my mentor. I was all like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, because I've learned everything about everything about doing business and, and, and moving forward and how to be a family man, everything. I've learned from him in simple conversations. He's not telling me what to do. He's guiding me and, and through his experiences, showing me how I can overcome the adversity. So, you know, it talks about, you know, that's what I'm asking leadership. It kind of talks about the, the dark side of leadership, you know, what to expect, um, you know, it talks about pers perspective and perception about what leadership is. Like I've told you, you know, my critics think that I don't know the first thing about leadership because I don't benefit them. And it's okay. It's okay. My job's not to benefit one person. My job as a leader is to benefit the entire organization, the community, and everybody that I lead. And I've done that by example. You know, so that's what the book talks about. And it just tells you that you're not alone. You may think you are, but every leader has gone through this and, and, and it shows you the way. Right on. Thank you for sharing. Please let uh, me know when the book actually comes out and I will promote it on my social media because I'm looking forward to uh, reading it myself. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. So, Jesus, if you had to give our listeners one last closing message, what would you tell them in regards to giving a heck and never giving up? Yes, I got different ones, you know, but I guess, I guess, you know, is, is, you know, if you had asked me this last week, it would have been a different one. But this week now, it's kind of more of, of that, you know, who you are today and who you are tomorrow is no resemblance of who you were yesterday or who you were five years ago. You know, we all make mistakes and it's okay to make mistakes. You know, that's another thing that's in the book that, you know, making mistakes just shows that you're trying and you're working hard. You know, um, you're, you're going to make mistakes. You don't know everything, especially if, if you're the smartest guy in the room, then you need to go to another room, you know? Um, exactly. So I guess I would just say that is don't let, don't let who you are today define who you are tomorrow. You know, you need to, to move forward and, and be a better version of who you are today, tomorrow, and keep doing that every day. Wow. What a great message. Um, listeners, um, I hope you have gotten a lot of good nuggets of information. I know I have, especially that last statement that Jesus just said. I rewind and listened to that a few more times. So while our time is almost up, I want to respect our listeners and your time. However, before we end, can you please tell the listeners what is the best way to reach you? Yeah, so, you know, uh, leadingthroughadversity.com, that's our website, uh, that's our coaching, mentoring. Uh, you know, we're, we're a sounding board for a lot of leaders, a lot of CEOs, and a lot of police chiefs, people in the private, in the public sector as well, who reach out to us. But leadingthroughadversity.com is the best place. You'll find uh, how to contact us there. Uh, you can reach me at eddyc at leadingthroughadversity.com is my email. Um, if you want to learn more about just me in general, not my company, you know, the book and everything that we've been through, just, you know, you can jesusericampa.com. Um, and, you know, just social media is the same thing. It's either leading through adversity on Facebook, Twitter, everything, or Jesus Ericampa on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and all that good stuff. Right on. I'll make sure it's in uh, show notes that uh, the listeners can find under my podcast portal on my website of giveaheck.com. Uh, we'll ensure that those links and so that people can easily find you as well. Um, yeah, I look forward to our continued relationship and conversations in the future. 
So uh, again, thanks for your time. So thanks so much for being on Give a Heck, Jesus. I appreciate your time and sharing some of your experiences so that others too can learn it is never too late to give a heck. Thank you for taking time out of your day and listening to Give a Heck. If you find value, I'd appreciate you sharing with your friends and family so they too can learn how to live life on purpose, not by accident. So you do not miss the next episode. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and please also post a review. I look forward to reading your comments. This has been Dwight Heck. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or today's show notes, please check out my website, giveaheck.com. And until next time, together let us all strive to give a heck.